Tobin. Kathy. I'm going to tell you about my dad. Ooh, a rare Kathy dad story. (laughs) Yeah, the thing I really enjoy telling people about my dad is that his sense of self-preservation is very strong. Like, for example, when I was, I want to say in high school, maybe middle school, I don't remember, um, we had an earthquake. This is Southern California. Earthquakes happen a lot, Mm -hmm. but usually they don't wake me up. But this earthquake woke me up in the middle of the night. It was like a gentle rocking. Mm -hmm. It got me out of bed. I walk out of my room, and my mom is out, my sister's out, my brother's out. And from where we are on the second floor, you can look out into our front door. And our front door is wide open because my dad has gotten up, ran downstairs, <laughs> out the front door to the front lawn. And he was staring at us being like, you idiots, get outside. Wait, he didn't stop to get any of you? He no. just went by himself. He just ran for it. <laughs> From WNYC Studios, this is Nancy. With your hosts, Tobin Lowe and Kathy Tu. So Tobin, a couple days ago, Netflix dropped season two of Queer Eye, the reboot. They took two seconds off and then they made a whole new season. <laughs> poor Bobby. Just oh, poor Bobby. Flailing. <laughs> <laughs> I love this show a lot. But how do you feel about it? So I actually love the new Queer Eye, which was a real surprise to me because I had very weird feelings about the original early 2000s version. Like, when I wasn't out yet, it felt really uncomfortable to watch Queer Eye. But my dad, on the other hand, loved it. Cue episode one of Nancy. I became a total Queer Eye for the Straight Guy fan. Boy. (laughs) There were guys that I thought would be really fun to learn from and hang out with for a week. Um, I remember you took, like, a lot of tips from them. Well, I took some uh, personal uh, grooming tips. Uh, For example, Carson, he gave me a new word, which was I'd already rolled up my sleeves at work because I work as a doctor and rolling up my sleeves is keeping them cleaner. But he called it zhuzhing the sleeve. You know, the show used to give me a huge amount of anxiety. Well, my anticipated thought is that it did because you thought it was too stereotypical. And I thought they were very comfortable in their style so that it was kind of like, for me, stereotype be damned. The one guilt I had was how much I told you I loved this show, and I didn't know if that offended you. So my dad thought that his love of Queer Eye made me uncomfortable, and in truth, it absolutely did. I mean, these five guys, they represented something that seemed totally unattainable at that point in my life. And because of that, the show always made me feel kind of uneasy. So when the Queer Eye reboot was announced, I honestly wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it. We get it, Tobin. You felt conflicted. Mm -hmm. Everybody felt conflicted about the old Queer Eye. And now you love the new Queer Eye. Like everybody else loves the new (laughs) Queer Eye. It's true. But what's important here is, what did your dad think of it? I think it's outstanding. I like how it's grown and taken the original Queer Eye for the straight guy and taken it to a deeper emotional level. And I like the way they are willing to explore their own issues and their own vulnerabilities. The original show was fighting for tolerance. Our fight is for acceptance. My goal is to figure out how we're similar as opposed to how different we are. 
Okay, we're going to go down the line with the new cast, and you're going to describe them and also tell me what you think of them. Are you ready? I am. All right, first up, Dad, is Tan France, the fashion expert. I immediately took to him as one of my first favorites. This incredibly suave and articulate guy who uh, is not pushy on the fashion-forward stuff. (laughs) Next up, Karamo Brown, the culture expert. He's more of a life coach. It wasn't just the going out culture stuff, but rather how you have your own personal sense of comfort in your skin. Anthony Porowski, food and wine, quote-unquote, expert. (laughs) Quote-unquote. Sorry, I just had to throw it in. I actually don't have anything against him. It's just fun to joke about. That's a tough community you're part of, Toby. (laughs) (laughs) He's the eye candy of the Fab Five. (laughs) He is. He, He really is. I personally liked him second most, even though I already knew how to cut an avocado and make my own guacamole. You didn't need Anthony. You didn't give me anything there, Anthony. <laughs> okay, we're going to go to Bobby Burke, design expert. In my opinion, the unsung hero of this show. I would agree with you. He has, for me, taken a, a big center stage as part of the Fab Five. I, I like him very much. <laughs> All right, Jonathan Van Ness, grooming expert. Okay, I'll just tell you right now, Jonathan has too much hair for me. Dad. I realize that's his vehicle to the world, and I respect it. I think there's too much hair there. I'm just going to say, for the record, Jonathan is the best one. He is my most favorite. (laughs) I think one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this new Queer Eye is that there is a way that this show for you and I is like a time capsule. Because when it was first out, we were in this moment together of me coming out and you having this year of being very emotional and trying to understand, and that the show helped you in some way during that time. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, with this new iteration, I don't know, I guess I'm asking, like, where do you think we are now? You and me. Yeah. We are where the second iteration is, which is being more sensitive to each other and basically paying attention to realizing that life just doesn't go on on automatic. You have to, you have to pay attention. Um, you have to, you know, care about each other and notice when something is happening. It's paying more attention to the subtleties and being present mm-hmm. and not just— and, and, and I would say that would be a, a difference between the first and second series. The first series was— because it was brand new, it was much more about exteriors and how we look and how we present ourselves and what we make, what we eat, as opposed to what's going on in the deeper emotions and vulnerabilities. So I think the, the, the second iteration of this is taking it to that deeper sensibility. Yeah. Has there been an episode or a moment that really got to you? Oh, yeah, that I cried. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was when that young man, I think African-American man, came out to his stepmother at the party. Yeah. So, I I thought it was important to tell you um, my truth, that I am, I'm gay. I wish I could share this moment with with dad and see how how happy happy I am and um I'm happy for you 
that really, uh, one, hit home, but two, was, was just such a human sharing in that the way the mom reacted and what he had been through kind of hiding it and half-hiding it. That was a remarkable, remarkable episode. That coming out story also really, I found to be very emotionally um, just like satisfying and really nice to watch play out. Oh, yeah. I'm wondering, like you as a parent of a gay child, was there were there things about that moment that you recognized? It did make me think back when you told mom and I that Thanksgiving when you were about to go to the airport and go back to college. Mm-hmm. And that... Uh, what was different for us was uh, I don't recall that any of us cried at that time. But at that moment, I remembered that you were sitting with mom in the dining area uh, when you told us about your new boyfriend. And I remembered saying to you right out of my mouth, well, Tobin, I can't love you any more than I do, and this doesn't make me love you any less. I do remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, of course, then the immediate fear for me was thinking about all the patients I'd worked with and treated for AIDS. I cried for a year after that. Mm-hmm. I think I told you that. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd pretty much cry every day driving to work, <laughs> that, yeah. that risk of losing you. Um, that's what really made me cry. Yeah. So, Dad, when I came out, you had all this experience of— caring for patients who were dying of AIDS. And that to, you know, to some degree, that was your understanding of what it meant to be a gay man and that you were afraid of losing me. And I guess I'm wondering, do you still worry about losing me? Yes. Because something can happen. Life is like that. It can turn Mm. quickly. But I do know that, um, you know, I'm happy that you have a stable relationship. So I'd say my worry for you is diminished enormously, 99%. But that kind of worry for a parent never goes away completely. But I feel enormously, I think mom and I feel enormously comfortable where you are with the good people that you're with, the kind of work that you do. And um, that gives us tremendous comfort to see that people from the LGBTQ community can have a professional life and be accepted and create a community where they're accepted and loved. Uh, And then be very proud that you and Kathy have helped move that along and help point new directions to do that. Uh, You know, you as well as your brother and sister, have exceeded our wildest expectations of what you could do to make the world better. Thanks, Dad. I mean it. Okay, I have one last question. Okay. You mentioned that you have carried zhuzhing and sleeve folding from the first cast with you through your your life since Kurai. Right. Have there been any tips shared by the current Fab Five that you have also adopted? Wow, you asked a tough one at the end. Um, <laughs> I, I'd have to say nothing new yet um, that I've adopted. I'd say not. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Are you saying <laughs> that you are too stylish and too informed to be helped by the Queer Eye guys anymore? 
That's correct. That's correct. I can. <laughs> I can. I can only applaud their efforts to help lesser human beings. <laughs> have any weird dad stories oh yeah so uh, my dad's super into karaoke these days for some strange reason every time i come home it's just like a party all the time and yeah i think he just has like a midlife crisis where he wants to become a singer i don't know <laughs> yeah maybe it's just a cry for help it's funny <laughs> nancy will be back in a minute and we're back and we are talking all about dads, our fathers. Yeah, we just keep talking about parents, don't we? We really do. I think it's this kind of endlessly fascinating relationship. You know, that mix of things we've known forever and stuff that you just start to figure out. And then, like, how weird it is when things kind of shift when you become an adult. Yeah, like, with that maturity and distance, you start to see your childhood differently. And maybe you also start to see your parents differently, too. So this was especially the case for producer Katie Schlechter. She recently decided to uproot her life and move to Mexico City to live with her girlfriend. And when it came time for the actual move, her dad came along for the ride. And she knew it might be super awkward, but figured she'd use the trip as an opportunity to ask some of the questions she's always had for him. My dad's name is Bill. He's 68 years old and lives in Cottonwood, Arizona. And I'm about to spend the next two weeks with him in his Honda CRV. I can't wait. That sounded incredibly sincere. Thank you. I tried. Our journey begins in New York City. There is such a thing as too big of an apple. A lot of times, the center of a universe is a black hole. I do know that I will have the opportunity to see my favorite view of it again. Which is? The rear view mirror. Welcome to Connecticut. Thank you very much. I always knew my dad was different from other dads. No one else's dad smoked a pipe while they drove them to school. No one else's dad taught them how to use a hatchet at age five. 600 feet, keep left to continue toward I-495 West. Well, we always have to do what Google Lady tells us to do. This is true. Google Lady is the boss. Google Lady runs our life. Google Lady will take me home. But my dad actually wasn't around much when I was a kid. He worked long hours as an ER doctor, and by the time I was in high school, he'd started drinking heavily. He had a temper, and we started arguing more and more. By the time I graduated college, I barely came home even for holidays. We couldn't be in the same room together without fighting. He was just so stubborn. Of course, so was I. It was my mom who held the family together. When I realized I was gay, she's the one I came out to, and I swore her to secrecy. Hey, sweetie. Um, it's about 3.15. I'm just wondering what, what you were up to. I'm kind of driving around. Uh, we checked in with each other a lot. I've saved a bunch of her voicemails. Hey, sweetie. They might not sound interesting to anyone else. They don't contain any major revelations. Call me back if you want. Uh, just her voice, reminding me that she was there. Um, anyways, I'll talk to you soon. I love you. Bye-bye. But two years ago, on a winter morning, it was a voicemail from my dad that I woke up to. 
My mom had had a heart attack and died. I flew home to Arizona. You might imagine that at this moment, my dad and I held each other as we wept. And we did. But we didn't exactly resolve any of our issues. After the funeral, I went back to New York in grad school and I buried myself in papers and seminars. The days passed and the name Mom kept not appearing on my caller ID. And in my grief, I didn't turn to my dad. Instead, I was worried about him, alone in the house, without my mom. So I called him every day to make sure he hadn't fallen off a cliff. Are you doing your laundry? Do you have food in the fridge? Do you plan to leave the house today? Which brings us to this road trip. There's a weird cloud over there. Yeah, many appendages. So he's got a face in the middle, too. The arm's coming out. Got a face in the middle. You can see a nose, eyes. I don't think I'm as creative as you. I can't see the face. Just haven't done as many drugs. When I told my dad I was going to move, he got this idea that he'd drive me across the country and let me store a bunch of stuff at his house, which was a huge help. How could I say no? I wouldn't have missed that for the world. You know, this is really the, the first chance that we've had to have any real time together since you were little. 16 days, to be exact. Starting in New York, then Philadelphia, Harrisburg, then across the Midwest to Cincinnati, St. Louis, then down through Oklahoma, Texas, and finally, Arizona. As we are approaching the state of Indiana, we are at the Indiana state line. I'm asking you, when did you discover or decide or whatever, you know, that this was your orientation? Turns out my dad had been sitting on some questions for me. And it's too late to bail. Um, so, I mean, for me it started, like I started wondering in college but freshman year of college, I there was a woman who was a senior who um, I was really drawn to, and, and I just figured, oh, you know, I really like her as a friend or something, but I was just really, really drawn to her. And sometime, I think it was second semester, it was towards the end of the school year, she told us, we were in some car ride with a bunch of people, and she told us that, that she was gay. And it was this weird, suddenly, like, the first feeling that came to me was this feeling of relief. And I had no idea why. It really, it spooked me. I was like, why am I relieved that this person is gay? Nothing to add here. I'm listening. Um... For me, over the years, dating guys... I've never been able to, like, emotionally bond with them. So when I've been in relationships with men, I felt very, very lonely in a way that I didn't when I was either by myself or with my girlfriends. So for some reason, the loneliest I've ever felt in my life has been in, like, a long-term relationship with a guy. I don't know if that makes sense. Sure it does. Yes. Okay. 
All right, my turn. So, um, when I told you in November, what were your thoughts? What did you think? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, now that you can't get mad at your mother, I knew already. She told you? Under duress. She got off the phone with you uh, the summer before, and it was obvious that your mother was upset about something, and it was because you were upset about something. And I said, what did I do? Is it, you know, why, why are you upset? What did I do? What did I, no, no, it's not you. It's not you. It's, uh, what, what's going on? What's going on? You know, it's just Katie. What with Katie? What with Katie? Now I'm scared to death. What's wrong with my girl? What's wrong with my little girl? What's wrong with my girl? What? I swore I wouldn't say anything. I promised I wouldn't say anything. And this is driving your father nuts, okay, because he's worried there's something, quote, wrong with you, okay? You've got, you've got something bad going on. And so finally she said, you know, well, Katie's dating a woman. I said, is that all? She said, yeah, Katie, Katie's gay. And I said, is that it? There's nothing wrong with her. And she said, no, you know, that's, that's it. Oh, okay. And that was pretty much the end of it. I really, you know, it was fine. When you were ready, you were going to tell me. And But, so, it's funny because I had a notion in my head, which is why I waited to tell you for a while, and I, had, I don't know, I was thinking about kind of the last coming out process I had had with you, which was when, when I left the Catholic Church. You said, well, I did the same thing. I left. I went and looked at the other religions, and and then I realized that, you know, this was the best one, and and you'll be back. Um, and I think, I, I guess I was frustrated with that response because for me, I felt like, I guess you were assuming that my process was the same as yours or I, I guess it felt like you were saying it was kind of a phase, a phase I'd get over just like you had or, or move through or something. So then I think I was afraid that when I came out to you, you would tell me that it was also a phase and that, that I would get over it. I mean, I understand that. Uh, Illinois, we're here. Welcome to Illinois. Um, anybody that cares about you, Katie, the only thing they're going to want is your happiness. You know that. And that's why, you know, when you wanted to bring Giselle to funerals, yes, absolutely. Well, what, what about the family? Fuck them. That's basically it. I meant it. Yeah. yeah, I was really surprised by that. It wasn't. It wasn't really the ideal time to to meet my first girlfriend. Why not? I mean, granted, you know, I was a basket case, uh, so maybe it wasn't best time for your first girlfriend to meet your your father, uh, you know, because. I was pretty much useless the whole time that she was there. 
And then, just like every time it seems my dad and I are finally getting somewhere, the road interrupts us with a cosmic joke. There it is. We pull into Casey, Illinois. World's largest wind chime. Home of giant objects. Wait. There's the rocking chair, too. Look at this, two for one. I mean, how can you beat this? Your destination is on the right. There's your wind chime and there's your rocking chair. Look at that. A twofer. Casey, Illinois has eight of the world's largest items. It's crochet hook, knitting needles, wooden shoes, mailbox, golf tree, wind chime, pitch pork, and rocking chair. That's awesome. I don't know, though. Does this still count as a wind chime if there's a string to pull it to make it go? Yeah, because when the winds come across, it probably blows by itself. You want to let her rip? Rip. My dad's face completely transforms. He's wide-eyed, legit grinning. My mom always told me about the side of him from before my brother Christopher and I were born. They'd go on these long drives, ditch the car on the side of the road, have adventures. He was spontaneous and silly and gleeful about stupid stuff. You like that? That's cool. That's cool. Okay, where's the golf tee? Where's the, where's the, where's the, where's the, where's the mailbox? Where's the... You want to see it all? <laughs> so what happened to this guy while I was growing up? Excellent trip. Excellent side trip. Okay, keep an eye out for me. When I would come home to visit um, over the last few years, like, I feel like there was always, or I always felt some, I don't know, like a, like a tension between you and me. I don't know if you felt that too. Kind of, but you have to recognize my state of mind those last few years. I mean, I was, I was really in a chronic state of depression between hating the job that I had to keep doing and it was, it was kind of hard for me to, to be the person that I was. And I just told that to your mother, oh, probably December. So I think I'm almost back. Almost there, almost back to the person that he married. She said, yeah, I know, I think so too. And so it wasn't something that was, uh, in other words, don't take it personal. Uh, it was not a, uh, it was not a high point in your dad's life there back then. This is the first time my dad has talked out loud to me about his depression. It only took 1,750 miles to get here. But it also makes me wonder, you know, that process that you were just kind of getting into and finally getting back to yourself and like, how do you think that was affected? Or how, how is mom dying affecting that? I said, there's a big chunk of me gone, and uh, like I told you, I don't care if I'm here tomorrow, and I don't. 
that's how that affects that. I mean, like, part of me gets that, but... Um, I don't know. I guess it kind of... Kind of hurts my feelings a little bit, considering I'm still here and Christopher is too. Like I said, I'm not... I'm not worried about you guys. You'll do fine. But that's not the point. That's not the point. And, yeah, okay, we have our lives and we're living them, but, you know, that doesn't mean we don't need you at all. Well, you know, it's not like I'm actively going to do anything to uh, hasten the process along. It's just whatever the process is, I'm, I'm okay with. have a large hole in my life now it's just there's a big chunk missing that I can't replace yeah that makes sense in 800 feet merge onto I-35W south We've had this conversation before, and I've learned that there's no way to talk him into believing he has a purpose, even when that purpose is me. So every day she hears, I love you, I miss you, and I want to be with you. The next afternoon, we cross into Arizona. We are right above Camp Verde, looking down the Verde Valley. You can see Cottonwood. You can see Jerome up on the side of the mountain. And the sun is just shining down on it. Uh, So we're only about... uh, We're only about 30 miles from home now. You look very happy to be home. I am. It's been a long time. I'm ready to be home. You might imagine that this is the point where we'd have a tearful reconciliation. That didn't happen. But actually, in 3,200 miles, we didn't kill each other. We didn't fight. Not once. We were even able to sit next to each other in peaceful silence. At home in Cottonwood, we unpack the car, and I get ready to leave for Mexico. And then, the night before I go, my dad does something he hasn't done in ages. He plays the piano.
right, that's our show. Credits. Producers. Matt Collette and Alice Wilder. Intern. Melissa Lent. Sound designer. Jeremy Bloom. Editor. Jenny Lawton. Executive producer. Paula Schumann. Special thanks to Kyle Sanna, who contributed original music for this episode. I'm Tobin Lowe. I'm Kathy Tu. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. Fun fact, that other earthquake, I was pooping. (laughs) (laughs) Set me back on the potty training for years.